The views, opinions, and content of the show hosts and their guests appearing on America's Web Radio are their own and do not necessarily reflect those of the station. You're listening to America's Web Radio on the AmericasBroadcastNetwork.com. Thank you for listening. Welcome to America's Web Radio. This is Ron Bachman, and you're listening to Healthcare Insight. Today, I want to talk with one of my very favorite conservative thinkers, Victor Davis Hansen of the Hoover Institute. He has some remarkable insights, but more importantly, he's able to express his insights in a very clear and concise manner. And we want to talk to him today about what's happening in this country today, the political conflicts that are going on, and actually talk to him a little bit about his views of what's going to happen in the future on the side of politics. How are the dynamics of the demographics and the new voters and the young voters and the old voters? How is all that going to sort of play out over the next several years? You know, in the last few weeks, we've talked about and talked with some people from years ago to sort of see what they were predicting and how much of what they were predicting has come true. Speaking, for example, with Newt Gingrich in the past week, uh, speaking with um, Pat Buchanan from the 1990s. And so both Newt and Pat uh, decades ago were predicting some of the things that we're seeing today in terms of politics and division and the cultural wars. And in today's world, you got Victor David, Davis Hansen, Professor Hansen has some enormously clarity on his insights into what's happening and what's going to happen. So I want to talk to him today, and you can watch a lot of his interviews on YouTube, but I want to slice and dice some of those and ask him some leading questions and kind of highlight the things that are so important for people to understand and hear today from such a great thinker. You know, on the Democratic side, we hear an awful lot about the threat to our democracy. They're so worried about Donald Trump uh, running again and winning the presidency. The world has sort of been against him in terms of the, the political world, the the deep state. He's been under attack since he first came down that escalator to announce his presidency. And after winning in 2016, they continued uh, to make up things about him, whether it's the Russian hoax or the impeachment uh, proceedings that went on. And now that he's out of office and he's eligible to, to run again, and he knows so much of what's gone on, and the public knows so much of it was fake news, what was uh, fake information, fake allegations against him, that they want to keep him out of office by continuing to make these fake allegations. And one of the things they keep talking about in terms of Republicans is that the democracy is endangered. Uh, that seems to be a theme that out of some war room or some focus group, they've come up with these um, these ideas uh, because they can't talk about their own policies. They've been such a failure. So now they've got to scare people. And in fact, some of the reporting of from insiders is that Democrats think that's their only strategy these days to win in November of 2022 is to scare the hell out of people about what's happening in this country and to make up things that would allow them to create this enormous fear in the um, in the body politic. So let me start with asking uh, Professor Hansen, um, is the American 
republic. Is a democracy under threat today? It's said to be under threat, uh, mostly by the left, but uh, it's a pretty resilient uh, form of governance, whether the Civil War, the Great Depression, the 60s Cultural Revolution. Uh, the problem we're having right now is that it is not working for the left. And so when it doesn't work for the left, they say the republic is in danger and they want to change the institutions. So they want to get rid of the 180-year filibuster of the 150-year nine justice Supreme Court, the 233rd year of the Electoral College, the 60 years of the 50-state union, because they feel that the electorate is drifting away from them and their agendas, which they've implemented the last year and a half especially, uh, do not warrant on any poll 50% support. And their president is at a historic low at 29% for a first-term president. So, yeah, they, they think that's what we're told. But I, when you actually look, our elections being held are uh, this the agreed on winners taking power is legislation being passed yes yes it is so professor hansen you're saying the country is resilient the structure that our founding fathers set up has weathered us through uh, many difficult times uh, uh politically militarily socially we've gone through upheavals and we've survived those and we'll survive the current uh state but right now, it seems as though the Democrats, the far left, want to change the rules. They want to change aspects of the Constitution, whether it's uh, impacting uh, free speech or the right to carry arms or uh, the filibuster that you talked about. All these are not part of their policies, which are unfavorable, as you mentioned, but are part of their strategy to retain and hold power and change the power structure uh, the balance of power that was set up by our founding fathers. How serious should we take those initiatives by the far left? We should take them very seriously because if you look at the Supreme Court, which was their darling for the last half century because it was a legislative, executive, and judicial branch all in one, and when an occasional Republican president wished to nominate um, justices that would bring a little bit of balance, they flipped. So Earl Warren flipped, and all the way to David Souter and John Paul Stevens and Potter Stevens, they all flipped. And now they don't. And so all of a sudden, they want to pack the court. And to pack the court, they just need to eliminate the filibuster and get every Democrat on board. I don't know if they will or not. And then they can flip it. And then they can vote to restore the filibuster, which they said they would do, because they're going to be a minority party and they'll need it in the fall. Professor Hansen, give our audience your take on what the left is doing to the Supreme Court and the attacks and the um, harassment outside their homes and the lack of the Justice Department stepping in to this uh, type of a uh, of, of an incident uh, attacking Supreme Court justices. I've never heard of it, um, and I want to know what your thoughts were. And also this whole Biden revolutionary group that's behind the scenes that we don't know about, the way that they're pushing uh, Biden and this administration to attack our own country and our own founding um, uh, principles in many ways. Um, 
What's your take on all this? What seems to many of us just seem a level of craziness in politics today. Uh, I never in my lifetime thought that mobs would uh, congregate around the homes of Supreme Court justices as they have in the case of Gorsuch and Thomas and um, others, and uh, especially Kavanaugh, and then intimidate them when that's a federal offense and Merrick Garland, district attorney, is not prosecuted. We never thought that Joe Biden would go overseas and attack the legitimacy of the court in front of his Spanish host. We never thought that they would talk about a 10-year-old who was forced to have an abortion because she could not obtain it in Ohio, and she went to Indiana. This was a result of... um, of incest, perhaps, and yet, as this, from this point on, even liberal fact checkers can't find the victim. They can't find the Ohio State Attorney General. He's trying to desperately find the vic- the perpetrator to indict him. We have no information at all. I never thought that uh, you would leak a, a confidential memo of a preliminary ruling, which is a felony, which the court did. And this is all in the context that the Biden revolutionary sort of government approves of this. They don't say the transportation secretary, Pete Buttigieg, said he had no problem with swarming uh, Justice Kavanaugh as he ate dinner at a restaurant. And, of course, we know it's asymmetrical if if. Uh, the Republicans were going to the home of Sona, Sonia Sotomayor, or they were leaking documents, or they were threatening to change the size of the court that's been there since, I think, 1860. They, they left would be furious. But it's all predicated on the notion, as we all know from history, modern and ancient, that the left feels that it's morally and intellectually superior, and therefore those exalted ends can justify almost any means to obtain them. Well, Professor Hansen, many on the far left would say that an example is the January 6th um, uh, far right uh, trying to uh, take over the uh, Capitol and prevent the election results from being um, uh, certified by the Senate. Um, what's your view on that incident as a threat to democracy? When you look at that empirically, everybody condemns a bunch of buffoonish demonstrators that broke into the House chambers and desecrated. We all want them to be prosecuted. But at that point, we should have a disinterested body of inquiry. And everybody thought that we would have a committee and they would look at this period in American history where we're assaulting federal property, i.e., let's look at the Capitol riot on January 6th. Let's look at the riot on May 31st, 2020 that burned the Episcopal Historic Church, tried to spill over from Lafayette Square and storm the White House grounds, which sent the President of the United States into a bunker. And the Secret Service world, man, let's look at a federal courthouse burned in Portland with impunity. So we could have that inquiry. And then we have never in modern history said in the House that the minority party cannot put its members on a committee. The speaker always defers and says, you pick your members, we pick ours. But Nancy Pelosi, de facto, her criterion for membership of the January 6th committee was, we will take Republican House members that, A, are not viable in the fall and will not be here next year, and B, voted to impeach Donald Trump. That left only two or three people, and they were, uh, the others were disqualified. So there is no cross-examination. There's no special counsel that support uh, presents a, a report. 
there's just a one-sided barrage. You can really see what I'm talking about illustrated very quickly by they're not interested in the number of FBI informants that were there on January 6th, even though Michael Rosenberg, who was the New York Times point man and had won a Pulitzer Prize, and he, he said in an unguarded moment, that it was kind of a joke. Everybody overreacted. He said there were FBI agents galore, and he thought it was just a, it was just a picnic, a frolic, a buffoonish group of people with cow horns and such. We've never. I don't know why we we withheld the name of Officer Bird who shot lethally Ashley Babbitt, a hundred and five pound person who went who committed a misdemeanor by break, going through an already broken window, and uh, we didn't get any information, even though it's common practice in the United States, the moment any officer lethally shoots an unarmed suspect, their picture, name, and IDs are plastered all over social media, the internet, and papers. That didn't happen. So there's something there about January 6th and the communications about uh, the need for security between Nancy Pelosi and the Capitol. They're not released, the 14,000 hours of videos. So what do you think will happen if the left loses the House in November and Republicans take control? If they lose the House, and I think they will, the the left, then I think you're going to see a massive number of investigations about what actually happened on January 6th. It's not going to whitewash the people who desecrated the Capitol, but it's going to be, I think, very interesting because there's, there's something there that the left does not want to talk about. Let's take a quick commercial break, and we'll be right back with the thoughts and insights of Dr. Victor Davis Hansen. Be right back. The Docs for Patient Care Foundation is your way to join the fight and become a member of an organization created by doctors for patients dedicated to fighting for your health care freedom and preserving the doctor-patient relationship. Get a pen and paper. Write down www.docsforpatientcarefoundation.org. That's www.docsforpatientcarefoundation.org. Go to our site and please make a generous tax-deductible donation and join the fight today. Thank you. If you love classic cars, you're going to want to listen to The Classic Car Show with Tom Cox and Richard Lentinello on America's Web Radio, live every Saturday at 8 a.m. Eastern at americaswebradio.com or on demand on your favorite podcast app. You're listening to America's Web Radio on the americasbroadcastnetwork.com. Thank you for listening. Welcome back to America's Web Radio. Today we are talking with one of the smartest conservatives and historians that I've ever come across who can explain uh, complicated topics in politics and policy in a very clear way. Uh, Dr. Victor David Hansen is just a remarkable spokesman for uh, conservatism, for logic, for um, understanding what's going on in this world of politics, uh, both domestic and foreign. He's got great uh, insights And I want to continue with that discussion today because his insights are so valuable uh, for people in this audience, maybe that have never heard him. I want you to listen closely because he's saying things that many people uh, would like to say in a clear fashion, but many people say the conservative message isn't getting across. Well, he has the message uh, down pat. He's a teacher, so he knows how to reach his students uh, to get them to understand complicated issues and complicated topics. So we've been talking about the problems in this le- in our last session of the country and all the uh, radicalism that's going on with the Biden administration, things that seem to 
not make any sense, but he is a historian. And so I want to start this session, this segment, with asking him about the American experience and why it is so special. And the beginning comments he made uh, last segment was that we have a very resilient um, structure in our politics. Uh, it's not like the British system. It's not like the Canadian system. It's different. And, Professor, if you would give us some insights as to why you think it is different and what are its strengths that will get us through some tough times. You could argue that this system that we inaugurated was a more radical system and it gave more personal liberty to the individual and it had the effect, whether intended or not, to draw people all over the world who felt that they were rejected or they had little opportunity and they had boundless energy and they came here under this system with the Bill of Rights. And we have very peculiar things in the Second Amendment, cherish the right of arms, and we don't have really libel laws. So it's a wide open arena and it has its drawbacks and dangers, but it has a, a restlessness. So if you look at criteria all over the world, I mean, we're, we're in an age of China ascendance and American decline, but we have 330 million Americans, and they produce almost twice the goods and services of 1.4 billion Chinese. Silicon Valley dominates the world. It's got $6 trillion of market capitalization and 10 square miles. So the U.S. military, even with its debacle in Afghanistan, is the largest, most lethal military in the world. So... There are things about this country that are not explicable just by its size or population if you compare it to India or China or Russia. So it has a dynamism. So with any country, there are great strengths and weaknesses. What are some of the dangers that you see in our country in terms of that we don't have classes like you might have in other countries, but we certainly have wealth distribution uh, segmentation, and we sort of have our own uh, level of classes and distinctions and elite, et cetera. But how do you see the mixture of the demographics and the wealth issues in the United States playing out over time? And so there's this familiarity among the classes and there's this dynamism and it, it's kind of, it can be a very dangerous mix. And when you add a multiracial, uh, multiracial woke element in the recent, it, it's very volatile and it requires, you know, constant reaffirmation that we're a melting pot and we have common values and we don't we're not a blood and soil country but it's nobody's ever tried this before brazil and india are multiracial democracies they're not doing too well but the idea that uh, barack obama could be chancellor of germany or prime minister of japan is just a joke he couldn't be it wouldn't have never happened and if i want to go to china and say i victor hansen as a so-called white person i want to be a chinese citizen that could not happen it would not be fully accepted it wouldn't be fully accepted in a lot of places and i don't think that the community where i live which is about 85% mexican american any of them who identified as such would have a successful career uh in continental europe maybe in the anglos sphere in Britain, perhaps in Australia and Canada, but not not in continental Europe. So it's a different type of paradigm. Well, Professor Hansen, do you think that the current generation or the population at large really understands the founding fathers' documents, the 
Declaration of Independence, the Constitution, the Bill of Rights? Do they really understand how unique this country is in its founding and its structure of creating balance so nobody can really dominate uh, so we won't have a dictator, we don't have a king, uh, power is given to the people, uh, recognize that our powers come from our creator, from a god, as opposed to our rights coming from government. Um, do you think the people understand that anymore? Uh, were people trained in that in previous lives? Did you grow up with that and you see it now being lost? Uh, give us some insight on that, please. They don't know anything about it. I I grew up in a rural high uh, rural high school, rural grammar school, where there was ten percent of the students were so called white, but they were traditional education. We all read the Constitution. We all know this was in the nineteen sixties and early seventies, and we were all got a very good education. That was thrown out during the sixties Cultural Revolution, and we had these studies courses. Gender studies, peace studies, leisure studies, uh, environmental studies, and they were therapeutic sociological classes. And they crowded out the core, not just civics, but also English and math, so, and history. So Americans, if you, if we were to walk on the street of any major city and ask somebody, uh, who was George Washington or Thomas Jefferson, and I don't just mean the name, but just say who he was, they would have no idea. They being the majority of people, much less if you ask what the difference between the executive or judicial. So what has changed since your education in the 60s and 70s and, and mine as well, and many in our audience today? What What's changed and what's caused this sort of level of ignorance or dismissal of the important things that would bind us, um, understanding our own government and our own governmental structure? This is part of the the school system and this this Western malaise of equality of result and the idea that if you have only an equality of opportunity and you have a strict meritocratic system, then a larger and larger number of people are not going to achieve the median. And therefore, the system has to be destroyed and the standards abolished so that they will be radically equal. And this... In American history, these, these tendencies, when you have open migration or you have enormous civil rights movements, it, then the, these pressures occur, and we see it here. And so if a person is not exactly equal in the United States to someone else, then there has to be, for that so-called victim, there has to be an identifiable victimizer, and we will go after that person or our institution. And that's a pathology that's that's plagued democracy for a long time and usually what happens the bad things that happen democracy usually happen in the more radical ones first so we don't have the constraints the traditions the knowledgeable population that other democracies have and so whatever is happening here usually it tends to exude and go elsewhere professor you said earlier that we have a very resilient system an ability to self-correct so what are the issues that you see we're facing that we're going to have to figure out uh, some dynamic to self-correct or problems that exist that we really haven't uh, figured out yet how to deal with? We have an enormous uh, ability to self-correct. The problem that we're facing now is uh, in this modern age, we have an enormous amount of debt. 
And we d- we're starting to politicize debt. We feel that debt does not have to be repaid. Mo- modern monetary theory has got us into this hyperinflation. We're starting to identify by our superficial appearance with this hyphenation that's gone mad. I am Latina. I am black. I am white. I am Asian rather than I am American. So there's some fundamental problems that were there in the past, but I guess the, the COVID crisis or the internet, instant communications or whatever these outside stimuli are, they've, they, they've made it at a crisis level. And we were waiting a Lincoln S figure that say, wait a minute. This is not sustainable. You don't have a country if you don't have a southern border. You cannot have eight, nine percent hyperinflation. You have you have the energy to develop it as you transition to other fuels. Uh, you cannot just abandon eighty billion dollars in equipment and hand them over to terrorists in Afghanistan and not expect people like the Chinese or the Russians not to take advantage of that sense of lost deterrence. So we need somebody like that, and we don't have them now. And um, We'll see in the next election. So, Professor, let me have you put your historian hat on and the observations that you've made of what's going on in this country, the the left sort of pushing the limits of uh, political power and power grab, many would say, with their threats to take over the uh, Supreme Court, with uh, packing the court, with changing the filibuster in the Senate. With doing all the things of of politicizing the Department of Justice, the um, CIA, the IRS, all those things that we've seen happen in this country, uh, there seems to be a radical takeover of the institution. So if this woke political philosophy is allowed to continue or continues for whatever reason, um, that they just continue to push the envelope and were successful with the support of mainstream media and Hollywood and actors and the woke culture of the corporation that's uh, developing. What's the outcome in your mind of all this uh, change uh, that the far left is actually pushing through our entire society? Is that the left feels that they can have this revolutionary movement and change the constitution, change the customs and traditions and get a radical egalitarian woke society. But they don't understand that once they destroy those institutions for everybody, then it becomes an Athenian democracy, what any 51% of people want to do on any given day. And I do not think that the left has 51%. From my reading of polls and just history in the United States, it tends to be a center-right country still. Well, for those of us on the right in the conservative movement, uh, we can only hope that we don't get to that point where things are so bad and they're broken down, our institutions are destroyed, that we then have the pendulum swing back and uh, the majority winds up voting uh, the way of a conservative country, but our institutions at that point would have been destroyed. I don't see how you re-establish those once they've been destroyed uh, and hoping that 51% of the population will vote the correct way at that point when the far left will change the, the voting rules, the voting regulations, they will change the dynamics of everything else. So I hope we don't get to that point. But I appreciate your insights, and I want to continue with this discussion. So let's take a quick commercial break, and audience, stay with us. We'll be right back with Professor 
Dr. Victor Davis Hansen. It's a museum, it's a showroom, it's an experience. The Classic Auto Mall in Morgantown, Pennsylvania is 336,000 square feet of rare, custom, and specialty automobiles on display and on consignment. From the earliest production cars to modern exotics, Classic Auto Mall is a feast for the eyes and the memories. Stroll through time in any season in this climate-controlled facility that you simply have to see to believe. Admission is free. Just remember to bring comfortable shoes. Veteran-owned, America's Web Radio would like to thank all of our incredible patrons. We wouldn't be able to do this without you. If you are not already a patron, you can help us continue to produce some of the most informative and entertaining shows on the Internet by becoming a patron. Patrons of America's Web Radio are the first to receive information about new shows and links to the latest podcast episodes. Join now and receive a free gift while supplies last. For more information and to join our family, please visit www.patreon.com slash America's Web Radio. If you have questions, contact us at gm at americaswebradio.com. And as always, thank you for listening. You're listening to America's Web Radio on the americasbroadcastnetwork.com. Thank you for listening. Welcome back to America's Web Radio. Today we are talking to Dr. Professor Victor Davis Hansen, who is one of the great, uh, great minds and great observers of history and life and politics. And I want to continue with the discussion uh, of the changing world around us and what might happen with this woke movement that's going on in this country with the Democrat Party has for a long time been banking on what some would call the demographics, that we've got a non-white population that's moving into the United States, that's becoming uh, a larger minority and will ultimately become a majority of the country as the white population uh, decreases as a percentage of the electorate. The Democrats are banking on that population because they've always gotten 90 percent of the black community's vote, and they've gotten uh, 60, 70, 80 percent of the Hispanic uh, community's vote. And they've gotten a large percentage of the Jewish vote. So by the siloing of the electorate over time, the Democrat Party seems to think that that's the winning strategy long term. And they're on the precipice of having a forever winning elections based upon the moving dynamics. So I want to ask Professor um, Hansen about this movement, especially the Hispanic population. It used to be said that unless the Republicans can get to 40 percent of the Hispanic population, they'll never win another national election. And they've gotten close a couple of times and they've gotten that that level of support. And it seems to be growing. Uh, What's your take on the Hispanic population in particular and the interesting dynamic and maybe historic dynamic of something happening that is actually a reverse of maybe what the Democrat Party was anticipating. Give us your thoughts on that, please. And what's really a radical, almost revolutionary development is that the slow process of 17 or 18 percent of the population of so-called Hispanics, very diverse uh, from Mexico, Central America, Venezuela, Cuba, but they were starting to reassert certain values of family, religion, tradition, and they had all come from socialist countries that they they left on their own volition. 
And the left always thought that by opening borders and allowing their friends and family to come across and then giving them generous benefits, they would have a captive constituency. But the problem was that in America, they, they became upwardly mobile and they began to get property and they began to have communities and they wanted what the white community has and they were getting it at the Asian community have. So, Professor, how, how do you see this changing demographic in this country playing out against this idea that the people came and left socialist countries and they saw the evils of that, the corruption of that. They came to the United States for opportunity. They're now getting property and homes and living the American dream, if you will. And they don't want to lose that opportunity. They want what they saw happening in this country in terms of upward mobility. And they're now starting to experience it. What is that going to have as an impact on our politics, on the democratic strategy of playing for a locked-in Hispanic population of 16 17% of the country, voting at a 90% level, much like the black community, of voting for Democrat policies and Democrat politicians to keep them in power. Is this a strategy that really is going to work out the way many people have talked about Many smart people have anticipated this for a long time and see the Democrat Party on the verge of successfully changing the demographics, bringing in new voters, if you will, that are going to be tied to them. Is that really what's going to happen? Are these radical Democrat proposals of open borders, et cetera, really resonating or going to continue to resonate with the Hispanic community? now to say, you know what, the border's not that important to us. We want to close because we're impacted by these uh, mass influxes. They come into our schools, they overrun them. We have crime, we have cartels, we have gangs. And you know what, I don't think transgenderism or windmills or radical third trimester abortions are as important to me as gas, inflation, uh, crime. And so they're starting, I think we're going to see one of the great revolutions in American history in the next four years. They're starting to um, completely abandon the Democratic Party. And the point that I'm making is the Democratic Party in its hubris had so alienated the white working class, which used to be its mainstay. And that's, you know, 70% of the country is so-called white and about uh two-thirds of that are working class, that they cannot afford to lose any of their black, Latino, Asian coalition. So we're seeing some things that could happen in November and then 2024 we haven't seen together. And that would be a dilemma for the left because the conservative surge would come from young, non-white people. And I don't think anybody in their right mind ever expected that. Let's get back if you give us your thoughts on the far left revolution and changing of the United States, uh, the constitution, the political structure, the power, um, you've declared in the past that a lot of that really started with the Obama revolution. Can you describe the Obama revolution and some of the points that make you point to that as the real change that accelerated this country? Uh, to the left politically. By the Obama revolution, I just don't mean moving the country to the left. I mean unleashing 
lowest learner in the IRS on people right before the 2012 campaign. I'm talking about Eric Holder, who was the first attorney general to be held in contempt for not turning over subpoena documents. And so in some ways, uh, the, the Obama administration was a revolutionary. They were the first administration since the Nixon administration to use the institutions of power, the enforcement intelligence agencies, as for political purposes. And they knew all about it. And Barack Obama was uh, president when the FBI and people were spying on Michael Flynn and, and inter- interrogated him and said that he had done nothing wrong. And yet they pushed that and pushed that and pushed that. So I, and then, you know, I, as I look at um, people on the left now, I think the people who are the pillars of money and power and the use and abuse of that are on the left right now. I mean, Barack Obama gives, he ventures out of his Calorama or Martha's Vineyard or new Oahu mansion occasionally to lecture people on their illiberality or Bill Gates does, who's the second richest man in the world. The Democratic Party has become a party of the very wealthy, powerful who feel that because they're left wing and they virtue signal their liberality, that that gives them the ability to enjoy the wealth that they've accumulated and to use it in ways that the the Republicans had never even dreamed of. Professor, what about the radicals, if you will, on both sides, on the conservative side and on the liberal side? Uh, We've been talking about the excesses of the liberal side so much, but um, can you admit that there are radicals on the right as well? Are there uh, fringe groups on the right? Proud Boys and those, yes, I suppose they are. But if in real numbers, there's two, two two main differences. In real numbers, they're dwarfed by BLM and Antifa. But more importantly, the major institutions of power in the United States, social media, the regular media, the universities, corporations, professional sports, they have green-lighted the left-wing revolutionaries. They can freely use Facebook to plan to burn down a building. And the investigative institutions are all over the right. And the right, this right-wing fringe group is identified. I mean, when you have the Secretary of Defense and the Chairman of the Joint Chiefs state that they're going through the ranks to audit to see if there's anybody that's full of white rage, when they have no documentation, they have no evidence that that's true, they didn't say, well, we're also simultaneously going to go through and see if the violence we've seen on the street with BLM and Antifa has permeated the military. They didn't say that. We'll go into that issue a little bit more with the military because, uh, you know, the message has been sent out basically that the military needs to look more like the American population. And you just described some very radical areas of significance uh, in, in the United States. Uh, and you're saying that the left out, you know, outsizes, uh, dwarfs the, uh, the radicals on the right. But at the same time, we have these groups we've got to deal with. How is the military, um, strategy of making this military look like the country? Does that make any sense? Then they said they wanted the military to look like the United States, proportionally, I guess, representative. And I thought to myself, 75% of the dead in Afghanistan uh, and 75 roughly in Iraq were white males. 
So according to your own logic, you're going after a rubric that you have smeared as potentially revolutionary when you at the same time expect the lower middle classes uh, to go into Iraq and inordinately join combat units and die at double their numbers in the population. And according to your own logic, they shouldn't do that. So there is no revolutionary movement on the right that I know of. I don't know anybody in the right who is... Uh, who is saying right now, let us dismantle these institutions. Let's get rid of the filibuster. Let's get in a couple more states. Let's get rid of the electoral college. Let's have a national voting law to override the constitutional rights of states to set balloting protocols. Uh, I just, I, let's pack the court. Uh, when Trump was uh, president, he, I didn't hear him say, we could really solve this problem with 15 justices. Let's get, and I don't remember Trump uh, sicking the FBI on the reporters, James O'Keefe. I don't remember the FBI becoming the personal retrieval service of the President of the United States when his son loses his laptop or his daughter loses her diary. So the politicalization of our institutions took place under the left. And in terms of importance, that was much more dangerous than what Trump's tweets were or what these crazy proud boys do or the buffoons in the House chambers on January 6th. Well, you mentioned Trump, and many people think all of this political grandstanding and all this stuff that's going on with the Biden administration is about uh, Trump. And some would say he's the elephant in the room, uh, literally, as a Republican candidate for 2024 and what he might do. How do you see uh, the Trump uh, potential? And the elephant in the room is the figure of Donald Trump, because he... On the one hand, he was the most successful conservative president in 50 years. On the other hand, he completely rejected the bipartisan establishment, Republican and Democrat, partly because he was not a part of it, uh, partly because they wanted no part of him, and partly because his personal comportment was at times crude and crass. And we'll see what happens if there is a subsequent figure that incorporates the Trump revolution. That is the appeal to the middle classes of all different backgrounds, but uh, lacks or does not seem to be necessary to go onto Twitter or Facebook and to be gratuitously mean and so-called. That said, we'll see if that person also has that outsider status and fire in the belly to take on the, that system. That system has to be taken on. It's huge. The unelected. These are exciting observations and insights. I hope our audience is enjoying this as much as I am. But stay tuned. We've got one more segment to go. We'll be right back after this commercial. Hey, folks, this is Victor with the On Point with Victor show. Make sure you listen every Tuesday, 1 to 2, only right here on America's Web Radio, the On Point with Victor show. Remember, folks, I'm not angry. I'm just right. And you can find out why every Tuesday from 1 to 2, the On Point with Victor show, only right here on America's Web Radio. When it comes to car magazines, are you tired of reading about mega-dollar collector cars you can't afford or endless reporting on auctions and how-to tech stories that don't interest you? Then Crankshaft is the car magazine for you. Crankshaft is a 144-page softcover quarterly filled with all sorts of fascinating stories, the type of car features you won't find anywhere else. It features American and foreign cars, pre- and post-war era cars of distinction including sports cars, muscle cars, and regular family sedans too. To discover what many car enthusiasts are saying is the best car magazine ever published, 
you can purchase either a single copy for $12.95 plus $3 postage, or a one-year subscription, four issues, for $59.95. To order your copy, go to www.crankshaftmagazine.com. That's www.crankshaftmagazine.com. If you love classic cars, you're going to want to listen to The Classic Car Show with Tom Cox and Richard Lentinello on America's Web Radio. Live every Saturday at 8 a.m. Eastern at americaswebradio.com or on demand on your favorite podcast app. You're listening to America's Web Radio on the americasbroadcastnetwork.com. Thank you for listening. Welcome back to the final segment of America's Web Radio and Healthcare Insight. Today we've been talking to one of the great minds of the conservative movement, uh, Professor and Dr. Victor Davis Hanson. And I want to continue and wrap up with some of his thoughts. He's given some enormously valuable insights, explained in very simplistic terms. Even I can understand uh, the points that he's getting at. He's got a great memory about all the issues that uh, have arisen over time to create both the good and the bad situations we're talking about. So I want to start this last segment by asking about the Supreme Court of the United States. There's now a six to three conservative majority with the Supreme Court, which is the final, uh, you know, arbiter of our laws these days. And many are complaining that uh, it's too conservative and that, uh, you know, they're, they're, they're attacking the individual justices. So I want to ask uh, Professor Hansen, is this Supreme Court change uh, the biggest conservative victory uh, in the last 50, 60 years, because in the past, conservatives have been supposedly nominated, but they didn't turn out to be so conservative after all. It turned out uh, to be fairly liberal. So we finally have a conservative court. Give us your thoughts on, is this the biggest uh, victory for conservatism at this point in time? I do think it is, and I think we know it is because the 10% of the elite and they are the elite, the never-Trumpers, this is the one thing they're fixated on. So when you look at the American commentariat, all they're writing for the last month is, do not give credit to Donald Trump for reporting Gorsuch and Kavanaugh and Barrett Comey. Don't give him credit. He didn't flip it. No, no, he didn't. But when you actually look at the record of his three justices, they're not 100% conservative, but they have not, done a John Roberts. They have not done a David Souter. They have not done a John Paul Stevens. They haven't done what every other Republican, Anthony Kennedy, every, you know, even Sandra Day O'Connell, every single Republican picked a justice who, when they got to the court, they made the necessary adjustments for the culture or the landscape of Washington, Georgetown, whatever you want to talk about. And they became increasingly part of the left-wing court. He didn't. He deliberately outsourced that to the Federalist Society. And he said, I want conservative, strict constructionists. Give me a list. He didn't know any of them. He never met them. And then nobody believed that he would actually honor that commitment. He did to the letter. And yeah, he did. He single-handedly changed uh, the court to a constructionist uh, reversion back to constitutional principle. He got very little credit for it, but he did that. So let's get your thoughts on the future, because Trump changed the dynamic and the persona of the Republican Party. They used to be thought of as the country club conservatives, the the, the rich, the elite. But now that's the Democrats and the Republicans representing the blue collar, 
you know, Trump was called the blue-collar billionaire. He related to normal people. He understood the dynamics and the thought process and the concerns and the issues of the normal per- people. And the Republican Party today is still moving forward and adopting his principles of America first and looking after the middle class, if not the underclass, as Trump tried to do, even though he didn't get the votes for it. So many people are thinking that they'd like to see somebody other than Trump run, a new generation that would have Trump's policies, the toughness of Trump, but not his persona, his personality that turned people off. In terms of voters, uh, hate goes a long way, and whether it's deserved or not, there's a lot of people out there that hate Trump so much that they would turn out and vote against him, but they might not turn out against somebody different who has a better personality, presents himself better, but has the Trump policy. So tell us a little bit more about what you think in terms of where this country might be going and the problems and issues of wanting Trump's policies, but not necessarily Trump by an awful lot of people who supported Trump in the past, but would like to see a new generation of conservative leaders. The betting odds are that he's going to run. And we're in a dilemma because, uh, People say, and you, I think you reviewed the dilemma that conservatives have very carefully. What we know is that nobody is running on a McCain-Romney agenda. Nobody is saying, well, we need more people. Let's open the border. That wasn't too bad. Or we've got to have radical transitions to green energy. So when Mitt Romney opens his mouth and articulates a position, it has zero support. So the Trump agenda, for better or for worse, is now the orthodox agenda of conservatives. Everybody agrees with that. Then the question is, who is the best taskmaster to implement that? And Trump did pretty well. I wouldn't, he wouldn't have had the agenda in the first place enacted, but people were weary. And now they're in a period of introspection where we're worried because the media just went crazy and Trump brought them out of the woodwork. And if that's so, maybe we should just not be worried and fight them back. Now they've exposed themselves or, why don't we have somebody who is more subtle and can not just push these gratuitous buttons, but uh, be, be be as direct in implementing the agenda? And I think the $64,000 question that nobody knows is, would a character figure like a DeSantis, would they be able to fill a arena with people? Would they have the fire in the belly or would they be contextualized and tempted and compromised is the way that all politicians are? Well, the Republicans would appear to have a strong bench of governors and other political figures that have stepped forward. How would you relate the prospects of a new generation of conservatives, uh, much like I think we had in 2016 when Trump sort of beat out everybody else that was on the, on the table there or potential candidate, conservative candidates, Trump won out. How does 2016 compare to today? We look back in the 2016, it was the greatest, we were told, the greatest field of conservative nominees we've ever had, would-be nominees. And remember that Scott Walker was very similar to DeSantis. He was a very effective purple state governor. He had fought the unions. He was absolutely uh, unyielding uh, in their opposition. They tried to smear him, and everybody thought, he's tough. He's run a state. He's dealt with the left. 
and he completely imploded on the stage. So what I'm getting at is we don't know how DeSantis will do. He's doing very well right now, and he's very combative, and he doesn't yield, and he's he's well-spoken. He's, his uh, resume is sterling, but we don't know how he'll do on this Sturm and Drang of 16, 18 months. We're gonna, I think everybody should have an open mind. Well, Professor Hansen, I guess what we don't know from the political perspective is what Trump's going to do. We don't know what's in his mind. Some of us think we know. But he's also one who could surprise us. So what do you think about uh, what Trump might do in 2024? We don't know what Trump is going to do. We don't know if Trump, if it's within him to say, you know what, I have the agenda, I have the the fire, but I'm going to be 80 years old almost, 79. I'll be 83 if I were to be elected. I, I bring all these people out. Maybe I should change my behavior a bit or something. It's all a mystery right now. So that's your mystery on the conservative side. What about on the Democratic side? What What's the mystery over there? What are their issues of getting a nominee for president for 2024? Now, what is not a mystery is that there is no one on the left in the foreseeable horizon that is going to be a viable candidate. And that can change, but people look at... Kamala Harris, or the biggest problem on the left is how do we get rid of Joe Biden right now and not have Kamala Harris because constitutionally that we have no other alternative. And I, I'm not just saying that to be flamboyant, but we didn't hear one word about Hunter Biden's laptop's contents. We were told it was Russian disinformation. It was alleged. And all of a sudden, the last week, the Washington Post, the New York Times, everybody is talking about the horrendous, horrific things in the Biden laptop. And I think that will be followed by the Biden diary. And the point is, the left has decided that Biden is the road to perdition. And they want to get rid of him. They look at the 500-word vocabulary of Kamala Harris, and they say, you know what? That's not. But maybe Pete Buttigieg, he's so glib, he's so well-spoken, even though he's even harder to the left, and he would only bring them more misery because their agenda is what's turning off people. And he is just a creature of the academic lounge. But nevertheless, because he's glib and he's gay and he's got all these uh, left-wing criteria, they're looking at him now. But they've got a constitution in front of him, of them, that makes it very hard to a point, it's not a parliamentary system. Professor Hansen, could you assess Joe Biden's presidency? Because he says he's going to run in 2024. So can you give a perspective? Because you've looked into some of his past, his background. You've been around as long as he has for 50 years looking at politics. Assess the uh, Biden uh, presidency and Biden himself it, for our audience, if you would. You start with the premise that Joe Biden was never a nice person. Never a nice person. He was always of dubious character. He got caught plagiarizing Neil Kinnock, almost word for word. He was a plagiarist. He lied about his resume. He lied about uh, his standing in law school. He left the he left the campaign not because he was losing, but because he was discredited. When he went in 2020, he had these corn pop, you know, quasi racist stories that he'd made up. And he would call a person fat or lying dog-faced pony soldier, or he'd tell an African-American young person uh, interviewing him, you're, hey, junkie, or you ain't black, or he told, he referred to one of his subordinates, an accomplished African-American, um, you're 
Um, he said boy to him, boy. He said Negro, which is now not correct parlance. So he was never a nice guy. The third thing the problem was is it had been known since his vice presidency that he was compromised or a son that has somewhere 50 billion, that the Chinese, the Ukrainians, the Russians, and all of these people had uh, paid into the Biden family consortiums. The left was gaga because now they would have no traditional swamp creature and they had Cory Booker and they had Kamala Harris and they had Beto and Elizabeth Warren. And so guess what? We saw them for night after night for a year and a half and they were stark raving mad. They talked about opening the border. They talked about mass amnesties. They talked about modern monetary theory, forgiving 1.6 trillion in student debt. You name it. It scared the crap out of people. Trump mistakenly thought that that was a sign that he was going to lose because nobody wanted to hear him and he didn't realize that, that his his minions were everywhere, all over the United States, getting out the vote, changing the voting laws, uh, drop box, the whole stuff. And Joe said, I want to unite everybody. But he was never that person. And he, and so when he got elected, sure enough, his cabinet came in. They were the most radical left-wing people. They put Joe out there cognitively. He was so challenged that he couldn't read the teleprompter. Yesterday, two days ago, he said, repeat this line, the one that's in brackets on a teleprompter. He can't, he can't work a five day week. He can't get, go up and down stairs. He's a very old 79. Well, Professor, unfortunately we're out of time, but you certainly set the stage with a lot of the issues and insights to the elections coming up here in 2022 and in 2024 and the state of both the Republican and Democratic Party. For our audience, I hope you'll join us again next week uh, to talk more about politics and policy and insights into what's going on in this country from people smart like Victor David Hansen. Join us again next week. Thank you for being here. The views, opinions, and content of the show hosts and their guests appearing on America's Web Radio are their own and do not necessarily reflect those of the station. You're listening to America's Web Radio on the AmericasBroadcastNetwork.com. Thank you for listening.